Well, two weeks ago now, I, I started, I think it's just going to be a three-part series. It's called Sexy Christian. And so it almost seems like an oxymoron to some, but uh, it, it's part of just something that's been stirring in my heart because of the culture we're living in and the questions I get and also something I shared on earlier in the year when we we're talking about growing up spiritually. And I mentioned when we're growing up, part of that is managing our sexuality and had several comments, especially from some young people about that. And so I, I recognize, and, and please hear me out, like when, as a pastor, when you're trying to plan what you want to share on and you're looking down the road, there's always some messages you think this is going to maybe help or encourage or challenge this group of people, and maybe this group of people is going to get mad. And, and so try, trying to find the balance, I, I know some of us that are maybe older in life, some of this you might say doesn't really apply to me, but do you know what Scripture says about the older helping to train and encourage the younger? That's part of the mandate of Scripture, amen? And, and so some of the things we might talk about, you're not in that season of life where they're directly impacting you, but I pray there's going to be people in your life that some of the things we talk about, you can have an impact on them. Is that okay? So Father, I thank you, I praise you for... Uh, how you've made us, how you've wired us, how you've built us. And as we talk about just biblical sexuality in a culture that's just all over the place, all over the page, God, I pray that you'd help establish in us your ideas, your, your design, your hope for us, Lord God, your future for us, some of us that are younger. Lord, I, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help fortify us, those that are making a stand and feeling like their values are being rocked constantly. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would strengthen, fortify, encourage, help forge us this morning as we look at some of these things. I pray you'd help me, God. I, I know there's a lot of material and I've weighed so much out. God, help me to articulate it more than anything with your heart, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen? You all right? I'll probably ask you that 10 times. It's because of my insecurity as I'm sharing. So, uh, hey, hey here, here's my intention with this, our purpose, helping followers of Jesus navigate life in a culture that is growing more and more influenced and obsessed with their overtly expressed sexuality by, number one, appreciating and respecting the treasure and purpose of our own sexuality, Number two, loving ourselves and others enough to set personal boundaries and standards with an intention of obeying God and influencing those around us. And then in the next week, we'll probably approach this. If sexual sin has taken a grip on your life, how do you get free and back on track and uh, have a testimony and, and some things, some tools to help those of us that maybe have been sidetracked by some of these things? So last week, I jumped into just hopefully building an understanding or help frame what I feel like Scripture says and God says about our sexuality. It says Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, Now may God, may the God of peace himself, sanctify you completely. That means when he starts working in our life, he, he what word sanctify means he sets those things apart and shows you his purpose and his plan for those things. When you sanctify yourself to the Lord, it says, God, I want your heart and your plan for my life and your dream for my life and your help in my life. And so he says here to the church at Thessalonica, the God of peace, he's going to sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is, who, he who, is, who calls you is faithful, and he will also do it. So last week, we talked a little bit that we're two weeks ago, that we're three-part beings. 
We're spiritual, spiritual first of all. Our spirit's going to live forever. The spirit's, my spirit's the real me. I have a soul, my intellect, personality type, and then I have a body. I live in this physical tent, at least for now. Scripture talks about glorified bodies, changed bodies are going to take on a different form when we leave here to go there. And uh, because we're three-part beings, God gives us gifts in each of those realms. He gives us spiritual gifts. They're given by God and the Holy Spirit. And you can find those in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And some of them are for service. And some of those are for administration and mercy and music's one of those gifts. He's, he's given us the ability to exhort and to preach and to teach. And uh, those are spiritual gifts, uh, you know, gift of prophecy, gift of speaking in, in heavenly language. Those are gifts from God. Then our soul, he's given us intellect. And we talked briefly, seven types of intellect and different personality types. That's part of the things God placed in our soul. And then there's our body and the gifts he's given us in our body are health. He's blessed us with health, health, and we're supposed to be stewards over that. But he's also blessed us with our sexuality, who we were created to be as men and women. And so though those, all those gifts, spirit, soul, and body, they can all be used to his glory, used rightly, or they can be misused. Amen? I've seen spiritual gifts misused where people become abusive and manipulative with them. I've seen also that intellectually and stuff that can happen in people's minds, it could go dark and, and go to the dark side. And there's also things in our health we can misuse, but definitely in our culture that pressures us ongoingly in a certain direction, we can misuse and be poor stewards over our sexuality. And when we do that, there's consequences for it. So quickly, I'm going to just hit a couple main points to lay a foundation from our last time. Just I'm going to go through this quick just to catch us up to where I want to launch this morning. I talked last time about counterfeits. This is fool's gold. It's uh, iron sulfide. It's pyrite. Kind of looks like gold, the same way to gold. But if you took this to cash it in because you think you're going to get a new car out of the deal, uh, nah, maybe, maybe not even enough for nuts on your wheel. I don't know what you'd get, but, but you wouldn't get much. And so the, the culture is talking to us all the time about counterfeit love and counterfeit meaning and counterfeit care and counterfeit desire. And that's why we need to go to Scripture because so much in our culture now has gone more towards feelings than truth. And we talked about Dennis Prager, his quote last week, that or a couple of weeks ago, he says, what has replaced Judaism, Christianity, Judeo-Christian values, and the Bible? The answer is feelings. More and more Americans rely on feelings to make their moral decision. Their heart has taken the place of the Bible or the Word of God. And so even in our presentation, sometimes our stories are illustrations that we share make the point, but that really scripture, God's word speaks. It's the word of God that abides forever. And so when we look to the word and not our feelings about some of these things, sometimes we're challenged. Sometimes we hear what we don't want to hear. Jesus said, if you abide in my truth, you'll know the truth and the truth will what? Make you free. I found out that sometimes it makes you mad before it makes you free. Sometimes it frustrates you before you find freedom in it because often the word of God wars against our flesh, the carnal side of who we are. And scripture said it'll do that. They're set against one another. And so when I learn to submit to God's truth and his word and, and learn to love it, how it changes me, it brings freedom. It doesn't bring bondage. Amen? Talking about different kinds of love, what kind of love are you making, different types of love. There's a, a love that God gives us for him 
It's special. It's supernatural. It's unlike other kinds of love. He gives us a love when our children are born, our grandchildren are born. There's a connection, a bonding that happens. And when our kids are born and you fall in love with them, and I still remember the responsibility, the feeling of it when our first son was born, like now this guy is mine and I'm called to protect him and to raise him up and to love him and nurture him and to discipline him. And I've been a champion. I've been in his court, even not this week, week before last, business deal he's in, texting him encouragement. I mean, it's a special love. Nobody else has that responsibility, that kind of love for him, but then us as parents. It's a different kind of love, amen? And there's a different kind of love when, when God calls us towards deeper relationships, that committed covenantal love that, that he designed and, and desired that would build foundationally, that there'd be an attraction to one another. And, and you know, certainly those of us that have, maybe we, we had other relationships, other friendships, and you decide, no, this... This isn't the one. There doesn't feel like there's a connection, no, no witness in the spirit, so to speak. And, and then we find the one and we start building that committed covenantal relationship with that one. And it's built on friendship and understanding and honor and the different things God desires in a relationship. So it comes to the place where you say, I can make a covenant with this person and we can live together and do God's plan together. We, we're we're going to take this thing to another level of commitment and in that context, God says, that's where I've, I've blessed and birthed this, this sexual commitment, this sexual union that, that's supposed to be in the context of that love and that covenant that God designed it. And so for our culture, it, it, it's not working that way at all. Actually, you watch a movie and a guy and a girl meet in a restaurant or meet in a bar and then not even 50, 50, 30 seconds later, they're, they're, they're in the bedroom and it's all over and they're exhausted and you say, what happened from there? And like, boom, 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 it's over. We, we just jump from here to there. And that's how our culture sees things, but that's not how God designed things. Anybody with me this morning? Your sexuality is not dirty. It's a treasure for your spouse. And we look through that in Proverbs 5, just the importance of that, how God gave us those things, our sexuality, connect us. He gave it to, to create the oneness and also for the next generation. So he, he designed it. He designed it to be fulfilling and to be pleasurable. And uh, so in church, we often talk about it usually in negative terms and usually about it, how you know, dirty it is. Well, God didn't design it to be that way. Our, our culture corrupted it that way. Amen? So then we kind of ended up with this. Marriage is honorable among all, and the wedding bed undefiled, but fornicators, adulterers, God will judge. And so if you weren't here, I kind of unpacked some of the consequences uh, in, in culture, the statistics, when we violate God's law, when we violate God's purpose, he said we reap. And so there's many things that impact us when we don't do it God's way. There's, uh, you know, sexually transmitted infections and diseases and untimely births, which shift, major shift in plans. Sometimes there's financial hardships, abortions. Well, the one thing that happens often is broken hearts and the inability to commit that we weren't able to commit one to another, and then unhealthy fantasies and memories and all that stuff. And, and guilt and shame's up there, but th this is the last thing I want to do, and I prayed before service. I don't want there to be any guilt and shame in this place. No guilt and shame today. Amen? Amen. You know, most of us, uh, I'll probably, I don't know, I wouldn't even put a percentage on it, 
but maybe what if 70% of us have some kind of a past where there's been brokenness because of decisions and choices we made? There's probably a large percent of us because I think I shared the first week, I made several mistakes, even as a youngster, and I sewed into just promiscuity and, and way too early in my life and had many broken relationships up until Janet and I committed and we got married. And so I can't stand here and point fingers. I've joked with people before, I wish I could take a whole cruise full of us back to the Virgin Islands for recycling. And we could, we could, we could start over and, and, and do it over. But uh, not so. Anyway, I, I just don't want there to be guilt and shame. Amen? Because wherever we're at in these things, whether you know, you're young and you're trying to figure it out and you need a fresh start, a new beginning, or a new way to see things, God can do that. Amen? Maybe we've made mistakes and we can get cleansed again and refreshed and then we can become a voice and a help to other people and that's what I want us to do. Amen? So here's N.T. Wright. We're going to launch from today. N.T. Wright's an author and a Christian author, a speaker, a pastor. He said, throughout the early centuries of Christianity, when every kind of sexual behavior ever known to the human race was widely practiced throughout ancient Greece and Roman society... Christians, like the Jews, insisted that sexual activities to be restricted to the marriage of a man and a woman. The rest of the world, then as now, thought they were mad. The only problem now, the difference, is that the t- today half the church seems to think we're mad as well. So half the church, when we talk about this stuff, is kind of abandoned the norms of Scripture, the morals of Scripture, and have gone along with the rest of the culture as far as our sexuality goes. And so it's even awkward to talk about. It's even like, you know, a group of pastors, we got together this week and we're talking about something that happened in our community and what should our pastor's response be. And then as we talked, uh, Brian Stupar from Calvary Chapel said, yeah, I just did this series on sexuality. And I know Luke Pugh's wife over at Mercy Church, yesterday she got the gals together and, and was talking about some of the same things, modesty and sexuality. So I know I don't stand alone in, in trying to bring this to our church family because we just don't talk about it much in church, amen? And we need to talk about it more. And so... Um, Saying all that, you know, lots of the church has departed from what Scripture says and has gone towards feelings and towards, you know, just if it feels good, do it. And like somebody said a couple weeks ago, and it feels real good, do it again. And that, that kind of is what drives us rather than Jesus. What do you want us to do as followers of you? Amen? This is what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonia. And I'm never going to use red font again. I keep forgetting. It's hard to see. But, but this, is, this is what he said. How many want to know the will of God for your life? Anybody in here? Well, well, here's one. Here's one. He makes it real plain. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, and that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Sanctification, again, is set aside for a specific purpose and use and for what you're called for and what you're called to do. Sanctification means that you're set aside to please God first. And he said that you'd know how to possess your vessel that way, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. But you know God. Amen? I know God. So it's supposed to work different for me. That no one should take advantage of him to defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is avenger of all. So that line, no one should take advantage and defraud his brother, Paul's making this claim that 
as a community of believers and men and women together and young men and women together, when, when you're just living to hook up and you're just living for sexual connection and sexual, you know, using one another, that way, he's saying you're defrauding your brother because this gal might end up being wife of somebody else, or this man might be the, the husband of somebody else. And so when you're not setting yourself aside and saying, we want to do it God's way, you, you defraud your brother in these things. You can defraud your sister in these things because you're, you're doing things to their spirit. You're doing things to their, their life, to their body that's reserved for something else. He says, don't defraud your brothers in these things. Amen? Because the Lord is avenger of such. Verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And so he's put his Holy Spirit in us to help us. We're in Bible school on Tuesday night, and, and Nathan did an amazing job talking and teaching about the character of God. And we got to one of God's characteristics in I've known this and seen it so many times and even shared about it, but we're one of the characteristics of God that is that he's a jealous God. And somehow it just rocked me in a fresh light that, that, that God, he's got a holy jealousy for what he created us for and the things that he put in your life and the plans that he has for you. And I, I, I just believe God has dreams over us and, and he sees the potential in us and the call on our lives and the things we can do and the voice that's in us and the musical ability that's in us and, and the ability to, the hospitality in us and those things. And I, I firmly believe what he's jealous over is the gifts he's placed in us. And he said he jealously desires the spirit that he put in us. And so when you and me are, are, are endeavoring to do it God's way and with God's heart and, and with a sense of, you know, holiness, and when I say holiness, not, I'm not talking about just being prudish, but I'm saying, no, a heart that says, God, I want to do it your way, that, that he sees those things in us, and he cheers for those things in us, and he wants those things for us, and he's jealous over those things in us. So when we're chasing other stuff, and we break those things, and just disdain those things, or abusive to the gifts and the things that he's placed inside of us, I... I, I Tuesday, Bible school, I really just caught a glimpse of his heart and I broke down. I was like, wow, God, you're really jealous over your people in a good way. You're really passionate over your people in a good way and help us to get it, amen? Help us to get it. He loves us like that. And he's not just a spoiler of good times and, a, and just a crusher of, you know, wanting to ruin a good thing for us. No, no, it's because he loves us and he's jealous over us. Do you believe that, church? So, here we go. This is moving a little forward. When you look at sex in Scripture, just the term sex and what it's about, and there's a Hebrew word and a Greek word for sex, but you don't see those words too much just talking about you know, male and female and the act of that. But usually in the context, when you're looking at Scripture and it's referring to sex, it's talking about two things, encouraging purity or discouraging what Scripture says is porneia. There's different uh, verb tenses of that. But porneia is this, and, and it's just, one translator said, it's just a junk drawer term which includes adultery and fornication, homosexual lesbianism, incest, all kinds of sexual expression that's outside of marriage. It's just a term, porneia, that, that paints a picture, says avoid that, run from that. Don't, don't engage in that. It's, it's found throughout Scripture 54 different times. 
that, that we're to avoid it, and it's not supposed to be part of our, our makeup or what we practice as followers of Jesus. And so when I say sexy Christian, you know, it almost seems like an oxymoron. How can really a Christian be sexy? Well, we're going to talk a little about that because we're supposed to avoid pornonia. We're supposed to, uh, you know, honor what's pure, but how can you be sexy in the middle of it? And I hope that as we talk about it, maybe you can get a new definition of really what it means to be a sexy Christian and winning over the culture. Those are the things I want to emphasize that we're called to win over the culture around us. Amen? In uh, 2002, it was kind of a renaissance in men's ministry, and John Eldridge wrote this book called Wild at Heart. And it was calling men back to their identity, their biblical identity, and at the same time, his wife began to write a book calling women back to their identity. And, and this is what he said, men went to want a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. That is what is written in their hearts. That is what little boys play at. That is what men's movies are about. You just see it. It's undeniable. And he said, what's in the heart of men? They, they, they're looking for a battle to fight, something worthwhile to give their life to, something worthwhile to, to experience. And then they said they want an adventure to live. They want to be part of a bigger adventure. And so you can see them in the back rooms. They're, they're playing video games. They're engaged in battle. They're fighting aliens. They're, the, the, the guys engage in those things. And then they want a beauty to rescue. They, they desire, have a heart or desire to, to, to be involved with, with a connected relationship. You know, we get a bad rap. Guys do. that. All we're after is sex. But I've met and know guys that their heart is they want to engage and have a relationship that's intimate and, and to experience the beauty of a person and to, to know the beauty of a wife. And not just the outer beauty, but the inner beauty as well. Do I have any guys that would say amen to that? And, and so this is what... Um, Stacy Eldridge said, she said, every little girl holds in her heart her most precious dreams. This is John's wife that wrote Captivating. She said, every little girl holds in her heart her most precious dreams. She longs to be swept up into a romance, to play an irreplaceable role in a great adventure, to be the beauty of the story. Those desires are far more than child's play. They're the secret to the feminine heart. And I've found that and heard that over and over again. In, in marriage counseling and relationship counseling where women said, I, I just want to feel like number one. I just want to feel like I'm the object of his love and his attention, that, that, you know, that he cares about me, that he thinks I'm beautiful. And we even see that in our little four-and-a-half-year-old Riley. I mean, yesterday we were at her house and she's dancing around and, and you, she, she does it kind of like to display her beauty or her cuteness. And believe me, she knows it. And we're to blame for that, but, but some of that, she, she just wants, she just does her little things, and then she looks, and there's, there's something about her that says, notice me, and, and love me, and appreciate me, and, and I've seen that in relationships, and so that idea of a woman displaying her beauty, that's not corrupt, that's something that's put in their heart, and their, their desire to be loved for their beauty, and they'll be appreciated, not just for outer beauty, but inner beauty, their heart, what they mean, what they stand for, what they represent. I think that's a holy thing that God put in the heart of people. And then we've distorted that. And so this difference between beauty, outer, and inner beauty, it's, it's something we need to discuss because our culture just pr pushes outer beauty. But guess what? That changes all the time. Remember, it wasn't even 10 years ago what, what a fashion model was supposed to look like, ghoulish and gaunt, skeletal. 
And, and that's the one that's on the cover of the modeling magazine. And then there's, there's this repercussion. There's a bounce back that says, no, that's not what real people look like. Have a little skin on their bones. Make them look healthy. And now the full-figured model is starting to get there because beauty keeps shifting in culture. I almost put up some slides when you look at beauty in different countries, what you get. It's not where we're used to. There's things in their hair and faces and lips and neck rings. And beauty around the world is a lot different. And beauty through time is a lot different. Amen? So Jan and I talk about being fluffy in this age. Or you're a little fluffier now. But you know, in the Renaissance age, fluffy was popular. This would be supermodel stuff. And in the Renaissance, this is a Renaissance body right here. And, and, but, but you look at the artwork and they were, they were you know, healthier looking people were considered beautiful because beauty comes and goes, right? The, the description of beauty. But when I Googled what makes people attractive to one another, these are some of the things that come out. Surely first appearances, first impressions. People talked about physical appearance. But others said this. This came up several times. They like confidence, that when a person is confident, it's attractional. When, when a person has passion and personality, that's attractional. A smile. Many people say that's one of the play, first places I look when, when they smile. They have happy eyes. When they, when they light up, that, that's attractional. When they have a sense of humor or a positive outlook, that's attractional. That's the beauty of the heart. Amen? When they take care of themselves. When someone says, I look at that person, they just seem to take care of themselves. They care about their health. They care about their, their appearance. They just take care of themselves. That's attractional. One big one that came up several times is when I sense that this person cares about others, they're non-narcissistic, they, they have a care for other people, that's attractional. And so scripture talks about the beauty of the heart that, that, that's supposed to be number one, that we're supposed to be more concerned with. Oops, I got stuck. Can you help me there? Get me, there we go. Scripture says here, Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but what? A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. First Peter says this in three, what matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewelry you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. Cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. And so scripture points us, you and me as followers of Jesus, to, to value inner beauty more than the outer stuff. And, and I'm grateful for people that keep up their appearances. We we got in this discussion last night because uh, we were over at our kid's house and our, our youngest son and his wife are heading off to, I think it's to Europe today or tomorrow. They're going on an adventure. And so we're talking about this because Michaela, Josh's wife, she's 25 now, and, and she does fashion design stuff. She, she does that on the side. And so we were talking about this difference between beauty and seductive, the difference between attractional and the difference between when it starts crossing the line and it gets oh, sleazy. I don't know. Is that okay? I guess I can use that word in church. You get that, right? You understand what I'm talking about. So the difference between attractional and, and pretty and, and then when it starts crossing over the line, because our, our culture you know, has gone, even in the feminist movement, the, the debate would be we want to be appreciated not for eye candy, but for our heart and who we are and our careers and what we represent. 
And now there's this culture that's kind of gone to the other, and, and it's, I forget the term they're using for it. It's not grunge, but it's something like that, that they just, we, we're going to display our sexuality by just looking grungy and something shifted. And I don't know about you, but we need some, I guess, revolutionaries in the body of Christ to make a stand over these things and call people back to, hey, what, what's honorable? What's, what's encouraging? Am I just sounding like a middle-aged, mean old guy right now? Anybody with me this morning? Come on. The insecurity. Come on. Let's hear a little. Are, are anybody with me? So help a brother out. And, and uh, I, know, I know this kind of starts getting directed towards, you know, a guy's perspective, but uh, I know it goes both ways because statistics say now that the number of women watching porn has increased significantly and the physical attraction that... that you know, women are getting pushed in the same direction as guys, that we're so visual and everything, body image is everything, that we get stumbled up in it. But Scripture encourages this way. Yes, each of us will give an account to God, so let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you're not going to cause another believer to stumble. So then let us aim for harming the church and try to what? To build each other up. So there's a call to build each other up, to encourage each other. And you're not responsible for the thoughts that go off in my head. And likewise, I'm not responsible for the thoughts in your head. But we can have an influence, an impact on one another, and we should be mindful of that. Amen? I still have to control my thoughts, but can we help each other out and be committed to building up, encouraging the church instead of undermining the church or stumbling one another? Amen? So girls know this, and, and again, it's growing more in the culture for working both ways. Guys are visual, but the girls are bombarded with the same kind of stuff. You know, the guys in the gym, and you're posting on social media, ab day at the gym, check it out. And, you know, the, the, those kind of things that come out, and it's just body consciousness being promoted. Well, here's a term for modesty I like. It says, Modesty is a respectable manner of adorning one's body and carrying oneself. So this is guys and girls both. It's how you carry yourself. And it's born out of a freedom from a worldly definition of beauty and worth. In other words, I'm, I rebel and stand against the world, the culture, trying to frame me and tell me what I'm supposed to look like and how I'm supposed to act and what I'm supposed to do. I'm resisting that. And it's motivated by hatred for sin and desire to draw attention to God. Amen? And, and so that kind of definition, it's got less to do with the lengths of skirts and the, how much sleeves are shown or how many muscles are shown. It, it's got more to do with the heart attitude. It's a respectable manner for how I adorn myself and so I'm conscious of what it's triggering and what attention, where the attention's going in my life. I, I like this. It says, when a woman unveils herself in modest clothing, she's not hiding herself from men, but she's revealing her dignity to them. So there, there, there's something about that that's powerful. And there's something about that that should be empowering for women that says, I'm just not a free-for-all for eye candy, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm monitoring because I value my sexuality, I value how God made me, and there's a dignity that can be tied with that and, and a, a strengthening of self-worth instead of an undermining of it. I ran across this blog site, Girl Defined. It's a couple gals from uh, Texas and uh, they started blogging about this because one of them got into the modeling industry. They're, they're attractive gals, and, and one of them said, I, I started pursuing the dream that many girls who like me do. 
that when you're talented and you're beautiful, that you feel like, I want a bigger platform, so I'm either going to try and perform or get on a big stage or, or model or get a job and career in acting. And when I started moving up the, those things, this girl just said, I know what it started to do to my heart because when I started moving up the modeling in the modeling business, the pressures that started coming on me and the, the people were getting me or trying to encourage me to wear less and to do things a certain way and to be more seductive. And she said, I could feel it undermining my core values and a resistance to that saying, that's not who I am. And so she started blogging about some of these things and just calling, calling uh, people back to biblical modesty so she puts a list together, and I'm just going to hit it quickly. I know this isn't popular to talk about, but you know what? I'm getting older, and it doesn't matter. I'm going to still talk about it. Because I, I have a passion for the church. Is that all right? I mean, I want to see revival. I want to see God's, God's church rise to what it's supposed to be. And so uh, even studying it, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, do I even want to mess with this? Okay, we'll mess with it. So... Dressing modestly requires a willingness to go against the crowd. There's a willingness to go against the crowd. Friday, Pastor Jeff and I, Pastor Mike Robeson, and we were at, sitting in front of Scout Coffee at the corner of Santa Rosa and, uh, and right over here off Foothill. And school's out. It's a hot day. We're out on the patio. And we were talking about some of this as well as the planning for the youth and all that. And in just in a few minutes, just the, the young gals, Coming by, the objects lessons were going right by us. And I'm just glad we're so holy and not distracted by that, that none of them drew our attention away from what we're doing. But as we're talking about it, we said, yeah, you don't have to go very far to say modesty's not really in the equation much anymore in dress code. So it requires a willingness to go against the crowd. Number two, modesty requires confidence in one person's opinion alone. So the girl that wrote this, she said, dressing in a, in a skanky, slinky, sexy clothing is typically accompanied by a deeper yearning for attention and approval from others. When a girl intentionally dresses modestly out of a desire to honor God, she's concerning herself with the only opinion that matters. In reality, it doesn't matter if other people like you, like your body, like your curves, like your style, like anything about you. It only matters what Jesus thinks of you. So choosing to dress in a way that honors Christ is very, very, very difficult, she says. It's not an easy thing. It's very, very, very difficult. It takes a lot of guts to go against the culture and to live out of this kind of lifestyle. And then it requires humility. She says, when a girl dresses modestly out of desire to honor God, she's basically saying, it's not about me. She's choosing to honor God with her body and striving to keep the focus on her face, on her personality, and her character. There, there's some beautiful women. You say, you have beautiful eyes, but that's not what I notice when I first see you because of how things are you know, portrayed. And now I'm picking on women. It could go both ways. Guys, some of you, you should wear the appropriate size shirt instead of like what you used to wear in high school, and never mind. It's just not doing it anymore. D dressing modestly acknowledges, you know what we do? We wear high school-sized pants. They just slush. Anyway, dreaming modestly requires humility. Last but not least, dressing modestly acknowledges the beauty and power of femininity. So when you're doing that, it's not about just the outer attraction. There's a power and a, and a beauty in femininity when you choose to exercise uh, modesty. We're going to wrap it up just real quick here. So two things, 
when we talk about being attractive, you know, there's nothing wrong in our culture about being attractive. Actually, when people carry themselves that way in business meetings, when you, there's first impressions because you can tell somebody's taking care of themselves and they're paying attention to those things, there, there's something attractional about it. Scripture doesn't judge that. It's really about the motive of the heart. And so here's some of the synonyms for uh, uh, attraction. It's just good-looking and pretty, handsome, stylish, lovely, stunning, striking, interesting, engaging, charming, enchanting, appealing, delightful, arresting, bringing attention towards someone or something for future engagement or discovery. Just the idea of being attractive is not a sinful thing. It's nothing to uh, shun, but when it crosses over, and I had a dash line there, like sometimes the boundaries, when it goes from attractive to seductive, the, the synonyms, synonyms for seductive are sexy and alluring and sensuous and immodest and being hot, tempting, sultry, slinky, flirtatious, provocative, erotic, tantalizing. Somebody's definition says this, come hither. That, that's what being seductive is, uh, come hither. And so when, when the motive of the heart is that, the intent is to, is to arouse sexual desire or interest, it's, it's a heart motive stuff. So the difference between attractive and being seductive, that, that's in our culture. That line's messed up, and I, and I hope the church can figure that out better. Amen? This is the idea of trolling. Now, now this says trolling... This guy's trolling for a large mouth bass, a really, really, really large mouth bass. But I, I, we were talking about trolling and creative meeting, and uh, I was at Tireman's Automotive, and this is his fishing lure that he has there. Now, I'm, this has got real hooks on it. I, I am not sure what, what you could catch with that. But, but some people think in the terms of trolling as how they dress and how they carry themselves. And for guys, trolling might be the car, the window down, the music playing. I mean, you, you, you think about our motivation as believers, you know, why we troll and how we troll. And, and there there's, needs to be a heart check about that stuff as well. Amen? And so when we're trolling, like when we're on social media and the pictures we're putting out there, especially when we're married, especially when we're in committed relationships, how we're presenting ourselves, you got to ask yourself, as I'm doing this, am I trolling for attention? Am I trolling for just, you know, my self-esteem? What am I doing that stuff for? And one of those girls from the Texas blog, she, she put out there just encouraging others about um, their, their, their selfies, their social media. And w when, when she did it, she said she got over a million, a million hits right away when she put it out. Just it, it went viral because people are engaged in this. What's the motivation be behind my selfies? Now, I like this guy. If you look at his T-shirt, like he, he sweat a heart right there. Like, baby, Abde, I sweat a heart for you. <laughs> Today, right here, I sweat out a heart for you. And, and you know, the girl, but, but you're on social media. Look, you can Google selfies, and th these are tame compared to what you'll see. But, you know, in our culture, like, am I trolling? And my motives for doing what I'm doing? Like, I, I need to put this stuff in check. And sometimes, maybe, 
Because there's something between, different between being cute and just showing, hey, off on an anniversary thing and people are getting likes. And, and, but one girl said this in a response to the girl's blog about the sexuality and selfie. She says, when I put up just a, a modest picture, I don't get many likes. But when I put up a sexy picture, I get all kinds of likes. And so it, it's just kind of about our hearts. Amen? I feel sorry for this guy. He, he put up, he should have... He should have done a spell checker before he went to the tattoo parlor, but I think it's supposed to say, you know, extreme, but it just says extreme, and so uh, never mind. But on a, we're we're going to end it right here. This is my last point, and this is more of a serious point, and this is last time when I, I did the introduction said why we're talking, because... This is to the church at Thyatira. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus, he makes commendations and comments to seven different churches. And some say if you look at those comments, the things he commended them for and the things he challenged them for, if you look at those things, he said, through time, each of these seven different situations could be found in any church, even in churches today. And so this one's to the church at Thyatira. And he says, I know all the things you do. I've seen your love and your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things, but I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin, to eat foods offered by idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to turn from her immorality, and this is tough. Therefore, I'll throw her in a bed of suffering, and some translations say a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away. Now, this is the only time in Scripture I can find in the New Testament when Jesus has anything to do with allowing or putting sickness on people. Every other place in the New Testament, he's healing people of sickness. Sickness is an enemy. Death is an enemy of God. This is the only time I can find in the New Testament where Jesus is associated at all with saying, I'm going to allow or or sickness is going to come on people because of this Jezebel spirit. I believe it's a spirit. Some commentators say that. It's, it's just not a woman's name. It's, it's talking about, from the Old Testament for 1 Kings, this, this Queen Jezebel that was over a culture, a, a nature-worshipping culture that was indulged in all kinds of temple prostitutions and all that. Well, Jesus said, I, I'm against that spirit. It's leading people astray. And you're doing all these other things. You're, you, I see your love and your service and your patience, your endurance and all that, but look, you, you've allowed this to come into your midst. You've allowed this to corrupt the church, and you're not doing anything about it. And because of it, they're, they're sick among you. Because of it, there's, there's issues, health issues, mental health issues among you. And he tells them to repent of it. And so that, that thing weighs on me as a pastor. When places in Ezekiel where God says, you haven't healed the church, you haven't, you haven't been aware or warned about certain things coming in the church. And when I started this series... One of them is it's, it's about powers and principalities to get hold of us and start working in temptation, working in our minds, trying to seduce us, 
trying to take us away from the purpose of God. I don't know about you, I want revival. Anybody want revival? Anybody, anybody want just, you know, and believe me, I can preach it here Sunday. I have some of the same things. I, I face the same stuff, the frustration, all the other stuff that comes in, temptations and eyes, all that. I face all the same thing, but at the core, God, I want this thing broken over our church, over family, over lives. I don't my, want my kids to go through some of the same stuff that I went through, and by God's grace, they haven't, praise God. Be on the alert to put stuff broken. Anybody in here with me? So when he says, don't tolerate her, to be on the alert, to pray against that, it's crucial. And we're going we're gonna to end right here. And uh, in the next few minutes, I just want to pray. And maybe you, you, you recognize some of the same battles. You recognize some of the same things that are maybe unsettling in your heart or stuff maybe that you want to take to the Lord in the next few minutes as we're closing. And I just want to pray. And as they're playing, if you want to just come and grab communion, you can. If you need to slip out, slip out. But we're going to just receive communion together again. And... Uh, Bring these parts of our lives to the Lord. And so, Father, again, God, I thank you so much for your patience in my life. You know, God, I, I don't stand as one who's had it all together, who's done it all right, who's navigated the landmines of pornography and all that other stuff that tries to defile and misdirect and create just twisted thinking I haven't done all that right, and, and you know that. And I'm grateful for patience in my life, Lord, and uh, you're continually working to bring that around in wholeness and purity as I grow in you and grow as a leader and uh, grow as a follower and grow as a disciple. I thank you for our church family from just different backgrounds and different things that they've faced, Lord God, and are still facing. I thank you for helping us bring wholeness to this area of our lives. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for cleansing. Thank you, Lord, for, for working in me and working in us, Lord. And as we're coming to the communion table, Lord, I just pray for strength. I pray again for just victory, insight, understanding. I pray for boldness to continue to swim against the culture that's trying to push us. Lord, I thank you for that and opportunities to speak and opportunities to make a difference. Thank you for that, God.